Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 26, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're talking about a fish that requires line heavier than my microphone cable to catch. It's the Goliath Grouper. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. We've got fish biologist Derek Cox. He's joining us from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's Division of Marine Fisheries Management. So big welcome to you, Derek. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this is a pretty cool looking fish. I know they're all cool, but this fish gets quite robust. So we were hoping you could help us first imagine what it looks like both as a juvenile and as an adult. Yeah, sure thing. So these are actually, in my opinion, prettier as a juvenile, but that gets a little overshadowed because of their size. And that's what most people picture when they see these fish. But when they're juveniles, they're you know really pretty kind of beige and brown with some kind of irregular bars kind of going across their body. Their head and their fins have these tiny dark spots on them that actually can be used almost like a fingerprint to, to identify individuals. They've got these big rounded uh, caudal uh, fins, uh, tails, and they almost use these like paddles to kind of maneuver themselves in the water. And so really pretty cool fish. And as you said, uh, get very, very large, you know, they can get up to eight feet, 800 pounds. And a lot of times Good gosh. Kind of give that the visual of a Volkswagen Beetle, essentially. It's roughly okay. Like, yeah. They're incredible. Thing. That's super cool. The size is like, yeah, you don't see too many fish that big. We've talked about some different mega fishes on the show, but that's pretty big. What's the radius of their mouth? <laughs> That I do not have a great answer to. Estimate for the people at home. Maybe. What could uh, they fit in their mouth? To go How about like, yeah, what, maybe, what object could they fit yeah, in maybe, their mouth? That's the biggest object you can think of. Maybe two or three feet. They could probably open it. I would, I would guess just kind of throwing a, a guess out there, you know, and they, like a lot of other species, they actually will ingest things by opening their mouth really quickly, essentially, and sucking them up. And so mm-hmm. they they don't really need to be fast predators or anything. They're, they kind of just hang out there and, you know, opportunistic, something swims too close or they find, you know, a crab in the sand and hmm. can suck it up by opening that, that big mouth. That's cool. I'm curious what these fish eat naturally. Yeah. So actually there, there've been some diet studies done to look at what Goliath grouper are eating as there are some concerns typically by anglers that they're, you know, they're eating all the fish on the reef. And really these diet studies have shown that th- their diet is mostly made up of smaller invertebrates like calico crabs and then smaller bait fish and really not very many at all of those you know more targeted species that other grouper snapper or lobster that being said you know goliath grouper are opportunistic so if there is a fish on a line that they see as you know an easy meal they're going to go grab it now the juveniles and the adults are you going to run into them in the same place or are there different habitats that they utilize they do have t- different habitats that they utilize, although there is some crossover when they get to a certain age where you may have some kind of older juveniles, sub-adults mixing with adults. And so typically uh, they start off their life history in the mangrove habitat, so inshore and you know, almost freshwater to brackish water. And as they age, they kind of work their way towards the estuaries and then eventually, usually as they mature around five to six years old and roughly three to four feet in length, they make that transition from kind of inshore, near shore habitat to offshore on the reefs where they continue to grow and is, you know, have become kind of popular for dive ecotourism and for catch and release angling. Okay. And how deep can they go once they kind of enter that ocean environment? 
Uh, so typically they're in, found anywhere from 50 to 150 feet. I'm not sure how deep they can go, but that's where most of our records of their locations okay. are at. So fairly deep. Goliath do aggregate to spawn, so they come together in a group each year during the summer months from June through October, with kind of their peak spawning taking place from July through September. And these occur in you know, Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic state and federal waters. But in state waters, really, it's just off Martin and Palm Beach counties, and it's fairly close to shore. And so there actually has become a dive ecotourism industry around these spawning aggregations, because you can go to these sites during the spawning aggregation season and see up to, you know, 100 or more Goliath grouper oh, cool. all in one location. Um, and so it's really a pretty incredible thing to see. Typically, you know, they're coming potentially from 100 miles away and returning to the same site each year. So there are folks that, you know, recognize individual Goliaths because of unique markings and see the same ones each year. Uh, And they broadcast spawn out there, typically during the new moon. And then those eggs and larvae get drift with current and tides inshore to to mangrove habitat and kind of start that that cycle again. It's very neat. Be like seeing a parking lot full of Volkswagen beetles out there. That's cool. They're just, they're not very scared of people, of divers, and they'll just let you swim amongst them and kind of hover around kind of ominously, but it's very cool. Um, So say you're diving in the water and these big fish are around you. What are they like? Are they nosy? Are they, I mean, are they interacting with you? What do they do exactly when you see them? So typically there's not a lot of interaction, but they're not scared the same way other fish tend to be, especially things like other grouper and snapper that as soon as you get you know, within 50 yards or basically spot them, they're gone. Goliath are very much at ease, just kind of hanging out. They know that there's very few, if any, fish large enough to threaten them. And so a lot of times they just are kind of hovering there and you can swim about. They don't really come up to you and do anything to you. They just kind of continue doing their thing and just kind of hanging out there. So I wouldn't call a lot of interaction, although, like I said, there are some individuals that have unique markings that people see on a regular basis that they kind of get to know and can recognize. I'm guessing based on this description of spawning behavior that the answer is going to be no, but do you know if these guys are sequential hermaphrodites or not? So it's thought that they are protogenous hermaphrodites. Really? Okay. Yeah, they're mature as females and then will change to become males, but it's really not well understood whether all of them do this or some of them and how kind of what the specifics are with that, Mm -hmm. but that's what's thought at this point. There's a lot of data deficiencies, unfortunately, for this species. Oh, okay. Okay. What do their eggs look like? I mean, are these really tiny eggs or what are we talking about here? They are tiny, you know, don't even picture like a chicken's egg or anything like that. These are, you know, (laughs) microscopic, essentially. Like many fish, they all start off super small, even if they're going to get these massive sizes. And then these eggs, they're just kind of drifting back into the mangroves and the good areas for the juveniles to rear. Correct. All right. I'm a fisherman and I want to talk about fishing because... You know, I don't get too many chances to go after fish this big. I'm curious, what kind of special gear might you need to, do you need fighting belts? Do you need like ultra stiff rods? What do people use to target these fish when they're in their adult stage? Yeah. So when they're in adult stage, like you said, you do need fairly heavy tackle and it can get quite expensive. So actually some folks will pony up and get that mono and and big, thick reel and really be prepared to land a, a big one that way. However, some people will just grab a hand line, which is essentially a rope with a leader and a large hook attached to the end and actually old style pull it in by hand to the boat. But there is a fishery that's targeted at the juveniles too, which is more of your traditional medium action type gear when you're fishing more more near shore, inshore. But offshore is what a lot of folks are targeting is to get those really big fish. How short do you have to go to get them? 
So not very far at all. They like to be around high relief structure. A lot of times that could be a ledge or really artificial reefs are one of their favorite locations. And so anywhere from, again, like 50 to 150 feet is pretty pretty standard for where they're mostly found, but it can be shallower than that and likely deeper than that. From a catch and release standpoint, I mean, say you hook into a very large, you know, mature adult, you're out at sea, what are some like best practices or considerations in terms of handling safety, both for yourself and for the fish? Yeah. So kind of a lot of the standard fish handling techniques and best practices still apply here. You know, you want to make sure your hands are wet, so you're not removing their slime coat. You're supporting their weight if you do have to remove them from the water, which you would typically not want to do with any of the larger goliath. And if you can, you know, it's best to leave all of them in the water as you remove the hook. But one thing you want to make sure of for goliath and for other reef species or any fish being brought up from depth is barotrauma. So know the signs. Uh, For those that may not know, barotrauma is essentially when a goliath grouper or any fish is brought up from depth, that change in pressure causes internal gases to expand and kind of blow up the fish, essentially inflate them. And so that can have some impacts to the fish's health and potentially survival. But however, there are, are tools that you can use, things like venting tools or descending devices are preferred, where you can actually help mitigate that concern from barotrauma. And actually, we've got some rules that went into place for state waters recently that require the possession of either a descending device or venting tool on board and to use it when signs of barotrauma are present. Could you describe kind of what some of those physical signs look like and what exactly they are? Because they can look kind of alarming at times. Sure. Yeah. So so the main one that most people see is kind of an inflated swim bladder, which is going to look like an inflated belly. Essentially, it looks like someone just pumped it full of air. However, sometimes you'll also see their stomachs actually coming out of their mouths or their eyes bulging. And really, that's just from the pressure of their in- inside of them. The gas is expanding and essentially causing some stress and potential damage to these fish as you bring them up from depth. And then once you are able to get them back down to the depth that you caught them at, that goes back in and things start looking normal again for the fish? Correct. Everything kind of recompresses and realigns. And, you know, the faster you can get them down there and get them recompressed, typically the more likely they are to survive. And there are actually groups like Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute that are looking at the best ways to mitigate bear trauma on Goliath specifically because it is such a large fish. And so looking at strategies that folks can use to help ensure the highest survivability when they do catch and release. Like say you catch a several hundred pound fish, how do you get it back down to depth? I know here we have like a weight, but like I'm guessing it's a little bit different for a huge fish like that. It definitely can be a challenge. The larger the fish is, the more internal gas that's going to be, the more they expand and the harder it is going to be to get them down and the, the larger weight typically you would need. And so ideally, you, if you're going to be targeting Goliath and barotrauma is going to be a concern, then you would want to have a weight that's large enough to be able to hook that fish up and actually take them back down. I'm kind of curious to say I'm fishing for something, some other species, a goliath comes after, grabs my fish. What should I do? Like, should I cut my line or is there a best practice for dealing with a goliath that unintentionally or kind of like get your fish? So so typically when a goliath takes your fish, you don't even have a chance to cut your line. It's instant, okay. boom, you're cut off by them. Okay. However, a part of this is just using best practices again and understanding that this phenomenon when a fish essentially takes your fish called depredation, you know, that it's going to happen. And as Goliath and shark numbers increase and and other large predators, we're going to see this happen more frequently. And so really you want to just minimize this impact that that's happening. So first of all, if there's an area that you know is likely to happen, probably don't fish there. 
use appropriate gear. The longer you spend reeling that fish in and trying to get it to the boat, the higher chance that something might take it in the process. And then when it does happen, when something does take your fish, don't just keep fishing there over and over again. You know, move to a different location in hopes that you won't have the same issue. That's good advice. Thank you. I'd like to see if you can help me understand something. My understanding about this fish from reading about it is kind of a vulnerable or threatened species. But whenever I'm watching YouTube videos, it seems like these guys are going out and they're catching release fishing for them. They're just hooking into a lot of fish. So what historically was the fishery like? What was the, you know, the stock like? And how's it doing today? That's a great question. And so I'll start kind of historically. So these, you know, were fish that had a fairly large range from South Carolina, North Carolina, down through the Gulf and Caribbean and to, to Brazil. And so they had a, a much larger range historically than they currently do. However, we're seeing a fair amount of them in Florida compared to some recent history. And so essentially through the 50s, 60s, 70s, there actually were no regulations for Goliath groupers, specifically in state or federal waters. And they've got life history that makes them pretty susceptible to overfishing, things like their spawning aggregation and their long-lived, relatively late to mature. How long do they live? So we we're know? not positive. We, you know, the lo- oldest that we know of was 37 years old. Um, however, due to the very low numbers they had, you know, back in the 80s and the being close to harvest, our main tool for aging fish, which requires the fish to be dead, to remove the otolith, the ear bone that has rings like a tree would have, you can count. And so there's been very limited data on that. However, we do have newer uh, technologies coming out that can help age fish without needing the fish to be killed first. And we think that it's somewhere between maybe 40 and 50, but we aren't positive on that. That's cool. And so you saw a fair amount of harvest from the 50s until actually the harvest was closed in state and federal waters in 1990. And so Goliath are pretty unique and require a different approach than some of our other more traditional fisheries. And so in 2018, FWC actually adopted some alternative management goals and metrics to help monitor Goliath population with indices of abundance being one of those metrics. And we do see that increasing in Florida. So there's differences when you look at the population to say how it's doing this, you know, differences when you look on a local level like Florida versus historical range across multiple jurisdictions and Gulf of Mexico, Atlantic, Caribbean, things like that. Okay. And so it was closed to actually harvest, but people are still fishing, like catch and release. And then recently, now there's like a limited opportunity to harvest, correct? Correct. So it's still closed in all federal waters and Florida state waters does allow a very limited, highly regulated harvest. And so how that kind of came about was, you know, essentially when we have the public trust for FWC to manage fisheries, for their long-term stability and for the benefit of the people. And when we do have to do a closure, it's our last resort kind of option. But when we do have to do so, we do so with the intent that we're going to restore that access when possible to help maintain that public trust in the management of their resources. And so starting this spring, we had actually the first highly regulated harvest of Goliath in over 30 years. And And so we were able to put in a very small Harvest is something to kind of give back at least a little bit to stakeholders that are interested in, in you know, having access to that fishery. Yeah, we know people really care about this fish. There's like folks who do diving who really care about, you know, people concerned about conservation. Could you just tell us a little bit more detail in terms of, you know, that 
how many fish folks can harvest? Are there any size limitations, any kind of like limitations, like time of year, like when they're spawning or not spawning gear, anything like that? Sure thing. Yeah, this is is pretty highly regulated, kind of atypical for how Florida manages most of our marine fisheries. Um, But essentially, there's a lottery system to award permits to harvest one Goliath per person per season, with up to 200 fish per year being allowed to be harvested. The season would be March 1st through May 31st, so just wrapped up. And this is set up to not overlap with their spawning season. However, the harvest is only allowed for Goliath grouper that are between 24 and 36 inches. And so these are still your kind of juvenile sub-adults found in inshore, nearshore environments prior to maturing and moving offshore. And this was done for a few reasons. You know, one is to prevent harvest of the adults that are out there actively reproducing and contributing to the population. This size range is also the group that has shown the largest increases in abundance over the years and to address some concerns that folks had with harvest in general, which was things like like barotrauma and mercury levels. And so where these juvenile fish are found are you know, areas where bear trauma is not as concerning because it's not as deep waters, but it's also because they're younger, smaller fish, the mercury levels are, are going to be lower and less concerning than in the adults. It's only through hook and line and you have to possess and use a de-hooking device. And there are areas that are open and closed in state waters. So Martin County South through the Atlantic coast of the Keys is all closed to harvest, as well as the Dry Tortugas National Park. And we are limiting the number that can be taken from Everglades National Park to 50 of that 200. And then the last bit there is that we do have post-harvest requirements. So you can't just go out and catch your fish and be done. You need to report things like the size, the location, the date that you caught it, and actually take a genetic sample and submit that to help with research and monitoring of the population. Is that just like a little fin clip or something? Correct, a fin clip, exactly. Okay. Do you know off the top of your head how many people applied for that lottery and then how many of those tags ended up getting filled this season? It was somewhere around 1,750 applied for the permit, and 200 of those were selected in the lottery process to be awarded a permit. Okay, and then were all 200, do you know, were they all filled? You said there's the reporting requirement, but did some people get those and were unable to fill them? So we're still collecting that data, so I don't have that just yet. You know, the season just ended, so we're hoping to have some more information on that soon. Then we'll also be doing a survey to gain additional information beyond what was just required to send out to participants shortly as well. So kind of stay tuned for that additional info there. Okay, cool. Well, I don't want to wade too much into controversy, but I'm curious what you heard from people when you opened up this fishery to harvest, considering that there's a substantial dive tourism forum, was anyone kind of complaining about that or whether they were mostly positive reviews? Yeah, this was a very you know polarizing issue for any who followed it through its its development and implementation. So there was definitely folks on both sides with typically the more of the angling community being supportive of a limited harvest and the dive community being opposed. One thing that they typically tended to agree on at least is that this small number is not going to have a major impact on the population and our staff at our research institute advised us that this very limited harvest would not impact either the rebuilding progress of Goliath or the population overall. So it wasn't so much the number or even the status that Goliath numbers are increasing. Everyone pretty much agreed with that. It was really more philosophical on whether a harvest should be allowed or not. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have really taken the biology into account with the different restrictions you've put on it too. So that's always good. And that's why we like to talk about the biology piece 
first on this podcast, you know, for understanding management and also for fishermen and fisherwomen to understand, yeah, just these fish in general. So that's good. So I'm not super familiar with my marine fishes. Are there other groupers I could run into if I was fishing or diving looking for a Goliath grouper? Yeah, definitely. You know, there are other grouper and snapper that that live in the same areas and, you know, would potentially bite the same bait or rig that you've got out there if you're fishing. However, most of them are pretty distinct. There are a couple that could be confused potentially, you know, the gag and black grouper. However, it's one of those things that once you see a Goliath and kind of can compare them, it's unlikely you'll ever get confused again because there are some major distinctions. But at first glance, maybe you could get the two of them confused. And do they, I'm guessing those two species don't get nearly as big. Is that true? Correct. Not nearly as big. Gotcha. And you just mentioned snapper too. We actually just recently had Greg Stuns on to talk about red snapper. I know that's a major food fish. Do people eat grouper at all? So given that it's been closed for over 30 years, not many folks, especially on the younger end of the spectrum, have had opportunity to eat goliath grouper. But historically, there was consumption. You know, people did eat these goliath back in the mid-1900s when they were harvested. Do folks eat the other species of grouper that you mentioned? Black and gag grouper are are popular to catch and to eat, yes. So is this your specialty or do you also work on other species? And how do you kind of get into working with this fish? Yeah, so I actually started with our Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. And so I was involved in the research Early on, um, a lot of our research for Goliath specifically was looking at that transition from inshore to offshore habitat. You know, what age they go, what what season, do they do it in one fell swoop or do they kind of slowly work their way out there? We did that through what's called acoustic telemetry, where essentially you can catch a Goliath and make a tiny incision and put this uh, electronic, it looks almost like a double A battery, but it's a transmitter that pings uh, an ultrasonic sound that can be received by these other equipment in the water and let you know where the fish was located after you release it. And so essentially you put these receivers in various places and as the fish gets close to them, it records that that fish was present and you almost get this kind of connect the dots movement patterns of where the fish are and it records the time that they're there as well. And so that was how I first got involved in Goliath and then moving into kind of the management side, I'm one of the marine fishery management's regional biologist. So I'm located in Southeast Florida, and that's really the hotspot for Goliath grouper um, Mm. as far as diving and angling. Did you have to set up your own receivers for that? Or was there an existing research array sort of down there in Florida for studies like this? So it's actually really neat. There is a large array of both FWC and lots of other researchers that all use the same equipment so that they can get information on their fish in other areas. So especially for fish that move you know, are highly migratory or move for long distances, you can't possibly set up enough receivers on your own to measure and monitor where they're going. And so there's a coordinated uh, group called the Florida Atlantic Coastal Telemetry, the FACT network, and they actually have agreement to share data. So if you get someone else's fish or other organism on your array of receivers, you let them know. And likewise, they do the same. And so this is, you know, connected all along the Atlantic up through New York even, they have folks that contribute, and all the way down through the Keys, and a similar program exists in the Gulf of Mexico. So especially for some of these highly migratory species that will almost definitely go outside of your study area once you tag them, it really allows a good glimpse as to where they're going, how fast they're going, and how often they're doing it. That's really cool. That's a cool example of cooperation. That's neat. 
Are there any ways that anglers can help contribute to like the management of grouper specifically or fish in general or any ways folks can help with habitat restoration? I know you mentioned mangroves and those are kind of in a realm where humans live sometimes. So just any ways people can get involved if they're interested? Yeah, well, the first way that people may or may not know that they're involved already is when anytime you buy fishing or boating supplies, some of that money goes to what's called sport fish restoration, which is a fund that the federal government distributes to state management agencies like FWC to help manage fisheries and you know restore habitat, things like that. And so it could be that folks are already contributing without even realizing it. But there are also other ways, you know, there's nonprofits that focus a lot on habitat conservation, restoration things like Florida Fish and Wildlife Foundation, and those all contribute to sustainable management. You can also just little things like, you know, not throwing your trash out in the water or letting it fly out of the boat, recycling your monofilament, being careful when you're going through uh, maybe seagrass beds, not to damage it, things like that all contribute ultimately to creating more sustainable fisheries. And then for Goliath specifically, we actually have a reporting option on the FWC Reporter app, where if you catch a Goliath or see a Goliath, you can report where you saw it and when you saw it. And then for all of our fisheries, we take comments from the public on concerns, questions, things they may just want to express through our saltwater comments portal at myfwc.com slash saltwater comments. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Derek. This was super interesting. And yeah, what a cool fish. And yeah, good job with the management and really enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah, great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the Goliath grouper. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.